Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Scott Schaefer in Fermina Kim. The U.S. Supreme Court is best known for its public docket of cases with oral arguments and long written decisions and dissents often released in the month of June. But the conservative bloc of justices has been making more use of what's called the shadow docket, decisions made out of public view, which are short, unsigned, and with very little explanation. University of Texas law professor Stephen Vladek argues it's urgent that the Supreme Court curtail the growing use of this process. He joins us to discuss his new book titled The Shadow Docket. That's next after this news. This is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer and today for Mina Kim. We're coming up on June when the U.S. Supreme Court releases most of its so-called blockbuster decisions on cases with great public interest and impact, like the Dobbs decision ending the constitutional right to an abortion. But there is another process where decisions are rendered sometimes literally in the middle of the night on a wide range of topics, including asylum, COVID restrictions, abortions, and more. Decisions that are not argued in public with very short written orders that are unsigned. Well, this arcane process is being used more by the conservative bloc on the court, and University of Texas law professor Stephen Vladek says it further undermines public faith in the high court. And he writes about it in his new book titled The Shadow Docket, how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the republic. Professor Vladek, welcome. Thanks for having me, Scott. Well, let's begin uh, by kind of strip away sort of the politics and the allegations of this being misused. Why does this, what used to be called the emergency docket, you know, why, why, is, he, why is he even there? So any appellate court uh, needs something like what has been called the shadow docket. It needs some place, some mechanism for disposing of procedural questions, for structuring its docket, for, you know, deciding when it's going to hear a case for providing what we might think of as interim relief, like what's going to happen while we hear the case. Um, And so the existence of this process is not either new or especially controversial. Um, Rather, I think what's relevant, the reason why I wrote the book is because I think we don't tend to think about it at all when we talk about the Supreme Court. And that's been especially problematic in the last five or six years because the court has been using these unsigned, unexplained orders in ways that are both new and controversial. And that's where I think not paying attention to them you know, creates this gap. And so it changed since, say, the administration of George W. Bush or Obama. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you can see Scott Harbinger's of some of these changes in one-off rulings in the early part of the 2010s, but it's really not until President Trump comes to office where the Trump administration brings a flurry of, you know, what are known as emergency applications, basically request to the Supreme Court to put a lower court decision on hold while the case works its way through the court system. It's only in the flurry of cases that the Trump administration brought that we really see this pattern emerge. And that's why, at least in the book, I suggest, right, the inflection point is probably mid-2017. And is it usually the executive branch that comes in and asks for that, or can, you know, any party do it? Uh, anyone can do it. I mean, I think the the reason why the Solicitor General, the, the executive branch, is such an interesting foil is because that is the most frequent litigant before the Supreme Court and perhaps also the most institutionally respected. But, you know, Scott, if you look at the the mine run of cases over the last six years, sometimes it's states that are seeking emergency relief because lower courts have blocked their policies. For example, you know, California in the COVID context. Um, sometimes it's private parties because lower courts have not sided with them in their challenges to state or federal policies. You know, we've really seen a little bit of everything in the last six years. And part of that's because as the court has done more and more of this, it's really normalized the exception to the point where, you know, parties are asking for emergency interventions from the Supreme Court today in circumstances we never would have seen um, as recently as seven or eight years ago. Well, let's talk about one example of use of the shadow docket, which was in the news recently, the case of Mifepristone, one of the abortion pills that the FDA had approved uh, decades ago and which has since become more available. Take us through, if you would, that particular case and how it ended up before the Supreme Court in this emergency shadow docket situation and what happened. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good example because it's also a good example of how these rulings affect all of us. Um, so uh, a series of doctors um, under the, the interesting name, the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine, brought a lawsuit in Amarillo, Texas, um, asking the federal judge who sits there, who they had a 100% of drawing by filing in Amarillo, um, to basically block on a nationwide basis the FDA's 2000 approval of mifepristone. Um, and the effect of that ruling would have been you know, potentially cataclysmic, not just in Texas, but nationwide, where you had the possibility that if the judge you know, did in fact block this access, mifepristone would become unavailable overnight in California, in New York, in Hawaii. Um, and indeed, that's what Judge Kaczmarek did. So on September, uh, sorry, on April 7th, um, Judge Kaczmarek issued this ruling purporting to vacate the FDA's approval of mifepristone. And Scott, he stayed the ruling for a week. He basically said, hi, everybody, I'm not having my ruling go into effect um, until seven days from now to give the government time to ask the appellate courts for intervention, for emergency relief in the form of a stay. Hmm. And so both the Justice Department and Danko Laboratories, one of the sponsors of mifepristone, go to the Fifth Circuit, the Federal Appeals Court, the Fifth Circuit partly sides with the government and Danko, but partly doesn't, hmm. so that a lot of Judge Kaczmarek's ruling was still set to go into effect. And that's where the Supreme Court stepped in. So on uh, April 21st, um, the court issued this unsigned, unexplained order, a stay, um, blocking Judge Kaczmarek's ruling from going into effect, Scott, until the case comes back to the Supreme Court. And I think what's telling about that ruling is, you know, a lot of us probably like the bottom line. We think there ought to be 
un, unimpeded, uninterrupted access to Mifepristone. But we have no idea why the court pre, uh, preserved that status quo. We yeah. don't know if it's because, as many have argued, the plaintiffs in these cases are the wrong plaintiffs and they don't have what's called standing. Um, we don't know if they disagree Which with the lower courts on the merits. Which is a technical re reasoning, right? That's right. I mean, but I guess the, the point is not to get lost in the technical weeds. It's just that we have no idea, right, whether that ruling was on procedural grounds or on substantive grounds, which means that even though mifepristone remains available today, um, there's no way for lower courts to know if the Supreme Court's ultimately going to agree with this decision or not. And that, you know, you multiply that by dozens of these rulings a year, Scott, on everything from immigration policy to COVID mitigation measures. And that's the shadow docket of the last six or seven years. Well, there was an interesting dissent that was signed in that case by uh, Justice Samuel Alito, uh, and he refers to the whole shadow docket controversy. Uh, tell us about that. And was he the only one that signed it? Did Clarence Thomas sign on to that as well? Uh, so that was just him. Justice Thomas noted that he was also dissenting, but he didn't join Alito's opinion. Um, and in, in his dissent, you know, Alito returned to a theme, Scott, that he first sounded in a September 2021 speech at Notre Dame Law School. Um, Justice Alito really doesn't like the term shadow docket. <laughs> and, 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 you know, his his critique is that he thinks it's being used by people like me. I mean, indeed, he has named me publicly um, as a way of trying to delegitimize the court. Um, and he accused, you know, some of his colleagues who were in the majority in the Mifepristone case of hypocrisy because they have previously dissented when he has voted for emergency relief. Um, and I guess, I mean, Scott, there, there are sort of two big points to say in response to that. The first is, you know, the critique of the shadow docket is not that it exists, uh, right? The, no one is saying that the court never should intervene, right? The question is, when is it intervening and why? Um, and then the second part is, Alito then turned around and said, well, because you're being hypocrites, I'm going to be a hypocrite too mm. um, and, and vote against relief here. And, and what this all just really exposes, Scott, is that there's a lot of drama in the shadows. Um, and, you know, it, to to appease Justice Alito, we can call it the banana docket. Uh, that doesn't change what's actually happening in these unsigned, unexplained orders. It doesn't change the very, very real effects these orders are having. And Scott, perhaps most importantly, it doesn't change how inconsistent a lot of these orders have been in treating, for example, Trump immigration policies differently from Biden immigration policies where you know cases that look very similar are resulting differently because the justices are voting differently like that you mix that all together and that's where you get to the real heart of the problem whatever we want to call it yeah we're talking with university of texas law professor stephen vladek his new book is called the shadow docket how the supreme court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the republic um I'm wondering, uh, you know, the, we, the Supreme Court has had has been in, in, enveloped in a lot of controversy lately, some of it around the leaked Dobbs decision, you know, back in 2022. And then, of course, the decision itself. And then more recently, the uh, ProPublica investigation of Clarence Thomas and ethics uh, around his relationship with a very mega uh, donor, wealthy Republican conservative Harlan Crow. And I'm wondering, do you think, and of course it's reading the tea leaves, but do you think that all that outside stuff has any impact on, you know, the court's behavior, including, you know, the way it acted with the Mifepristone uh, shadow docket decision? Oh, I think there's no question. I mean, and and Scott, there's a, there's a fascinating moment. We were just talking about Justice Alito's dissent 
in that April 21st ruling. You know, one of the things that's really remarkable in that opinion is that he does not just go after Justice Kagan and Justice Sotomayor. You know, I think we wouldn't be surprised by that. Um, he goes after Justice Barrett uh, for an opinion that she had written in October 2021 in a challenge uh, to Maine's um, uh, COVID vaccination mandate for healthcare workers. And I think that's a reflection, Scott, that Justice Barrett has actually been a little bit subject um, and influenced by this public pressure, hmm. where you know I think she has come to, if not regret, then at least reconsider how often she was voting for emergency relief for these kinds of interventions during her first term on the court. Hmm. Um, and we've seen that cash out in the data. We're seeing actually more and more decisions this term, like the one in the Mipa-Pristone case, where the court is going in one direction and some combination of justices Thomas, Alito, and Gorsuch are going in the other. Um, Scott, we're also seeing other ways in which the court's behavior has changed. We're seeing big cases that come to the court through emergency applications where the court doesn't resolve it as an emergency application and instead converts it to a merits case, holds hmm. oral argument, you know, gives the full nine yards of process. Um, the student loan cases are a good example of that. So, I, I mean, I think, yes, one of the stories here is that there is some evidence that the more the public is aware of the shadow docket, the more the public is understanding it, um, the more the justices are actually realizing that this is not the best way to run a railroad. All right. We are going to take a short break. When we continue, we're going to continue our conversation with Stephen Vladek, who, by the way, will be speaking at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco tomorrow night at 6 o'clock with UC Berkeley law professor Amanda Tyler. Tickets are still available. And we'd love to hear from you this hour. Give us your thoughts, your questions. What are your questions and reactions to what you're hearing? What would you like to understand about the Supreme Court's shadow docket? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. Or you can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour for me and Kim, talking with University of Texas law professor Stephen Vladek. His new book is titled The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. 
And we'd love to hear from you. What are your thoughts about uh, the Supreme Court generally and its use of this somewhat arcane process and how it's uh, being misused in, in the views of many? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org if you want to send your questions or comments that way. Or, as always, we can be reached on social media as well. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're at KQED Forum. Um, we were, I don't want to get too technical here, but, you know, there are, I believe each justice is assigned a, a circuit um, in, in the United States. And that sometimes, like, say, if there's a execution pending or some emergency thing that will go to uh, a particular justice, how is that related to and different from this shadow docket? Oh, it's it's the heart of it. I mean, so Scott, in the in the old days, the circuit justice was not just the first word when you had these kinds of emergency applications, but they were usually the last word. And so, as late as 1980, um, the norm on the court, whenever there was an emergency application, was for the circuit justice, the justice assigned to that part of the country. Uh, right now, the circuit justice for the Ninth Circuit, which includes California, is Justice Kagan. They would decide it by themselves. Um, and oftentimes they would actually hold what we called an in-chambers oral argument. Uh, Justice Douglas actually would often commandeer the local courtroom in Yakima, Washington, um, close to his summer cottage. Um, they would write opinions by themselves. And, you know, Scott, that had two great advantages. One, it meant the parties actually had more of an opportunity to be heard. And two, no one confused what an individual justice would have written in one case with the word of the full court. Um, and one of the shifts that actually the book documents and that got us to where we are today is a very quiet but undeniable shift in the early 1980s, where in response to a real surge in last minute death penalty applications, the court goes away from the circuit justice model mm -hmm. um, and toward this model of having any remotely divisive application referred to the full court. But Scott, the full court would not hear oral argument. The full court would usually not write an opinion. And yet it would still be deciding these applications. Hmm. I, I think that move was deeply problematic when it happened, but no one really noticed it because it was confined to the unique space of the death penalty, really all the way into the 2010s. Hmm. Um, and part of what shifts in the 2010s, starting with those Trump cases we were talking about before the break, is that the justices start following those same norms and those same traditions in cases that now have much broader statewide or nationwide policy impacts. We know that uh, the lack of transparency, of course, is one of the big uh, problems with this, hence the name Shadow Docket. But is the process internally uh, that different as well? In other words, are they all talking to each other before these things are these decisions are reached? Are they all on Zoom? Are they all on the phone? I mean, <laughs> what kind what is the process? You know, we don't know a lot about it, um, which kind of makes it hard to, to 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 draw judgments about it. But we know that it's much more of a truncated process um, than the merits docket. So the merits docket, just to, to back up and, and make sure we're all on the same page, you know, when the court hears oral argument in a case, by the time the justices are on the bench, there have been two full rounds of briefing where the parties have had a chance to be heard, where outside friends of the court have had a chance to be heard. And then the justices get, you know, upwards of an hour, two hours to ask questions. And then they go back and they sit in a room together, Scott, and they talk about the case and they talk about how they're going to come out. Um, none of that happens 
on emergency applications. You know, the the scuttlebutt, the sense we have is that, yes, the justices are talking to each other, but informally um, and maybe even not in person where, you know, perhaps the circuit justice will say, I propose that we do this. And then like over email, other justices will say, I disagree or I agree. Um, and, and this gets to sort of one of the core problems, which is that process just doesn't lend itself to the same kind of reason, principle, deliberation that we're used to on the merits docket. And the result has been, you know, Scott, we don't get a lot of opinions for the majority in this context. We do get a bunch of separate concurrences and dissents. Um, and I don't think I'm speaking out of school and I suggest that those opinions have been somewhat sloppier than yeah. the opinions we're used to on the merits docket. They've been a little more acerbic and heated in their rhetoric because, you know, I think unsurprisingly, when you're moving quickly without your normal deliberative process, um, some of the niceties might get left out. Yeah. Well, I know that before he died, uh, Scalia was known in particular for having a very acerbic wit, very pointed uh, criticisms of his fellow justices. Has Alito kind of now filled that role? I think Justice Alito is certainly the the head of the uh, acerbicity standings, um, <laughs> right? Um, but but I, I mean, I think it's it's fascinating to see the dynamics in the emergency context, where you know I think we, we tend to think of the court these days as a very very profound six to three conservative majority and a deeply entrenched six to three conservative majority. And on the shadow docket, Scott, I actually think it looks a lot more like a three 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 court. Hmm. Um, where, you know, it's very easy to predict in any case with any kind of ideological bent where the three Democratic appointees are going to end up and where Thomas Alito and Gorsuch are going to end up. And it's much harder to predict where the Chief Justice and Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett are going to end up. And indeed, I mean, we saw, especially in 2020 and 2021, a number of shadow docket rulings where the court was 5-4 with the Chief joining the more liberal justices in dissent, hmm. and where his objections were not on the merits, his objections were to the procedural shortcuts. So I, I think there's actually a lot more. In some respects, we can actually learn a lot more about the court by looking at this part of its work as well. Hmm, interesting. Well, I wonder, you know, you, you talked about, uh, you know, Alito and Barrett and how, how, you know, reading the tea leaves again, how they might be feeling about the use of the shadow docket and the criticism of it. But of course, this is or was the Roberts court. I mean, he is the chief justice. Um, do you have a sense of, uh, you know, is he concerned about this? And is there anything he could do to change it? Um, so I think the the answer to your first question is yes, and the answer to your second question is harder, um, right? So um, as Chief Justice, he is the senior member of the court's bench, but he doesn't actually have a lot of independent authority, um, right? You know, all that means is that when he's in the majority, he decides who's going to write for the court. And one of the real things that happened most visibly on the shadow docket when Justice Ginsburg died and Justice Barrett was appointed to replace her is that the chief became marginalized overnight, um, where, you know, as early as late November 2020, the chief is in dissent in these two really high profile um, shadow docket rulings that blocked New York COVID restrictions on religious liberty grounds. Um, and we've seen that, you know, Scott, over and over again, where the chief has been dissenting from the other conservatives, reflecting that he really can't control them um, anymore if ever he could. We saw that in the Texas abortion case in September 2021, the Alabama redistricting case in February 2022, and so on. Um, as, you know, what can he do? I mean, I think he's doing it, which is 
you know, he's writing dissents. He's joining some of Justice Kagan's opinions that have been very critical of the other conservative justices. Um, and I think he's probably also working a little bit behind the scenes to push at least some of the justices to try to act in a way that's more institutionally responsible, even if it doesn't actually change where the court's going substantively, hmm. right, in the long term. Well, you know, the courts, the high court is unique in so many ways um, in, in terms of transparency. There are no cameras in the Supreme Court. And, it, you know, I've released one of the justices in the past to sit over my dead body. Uh, they have <laughs> just recently begun oral uh, audio recordings that they make available, which are helpful. Um, but there's also, of course, this ethics issue and the voluntary nature of the ethical standards, which does is not the case with the lower courts, only the Supreme Court. They get to self-decide whether they have a conflict and what they have to report to a certain extent, although it seems like that's tightening up. I mean, isn't isn't it seems like this is part of that conversation we're having you know, about the shadow docket in some ways. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. Um, and and I think it's it's two sides of the same coin, which is about accountability and the extent to which the court is or is not, you know, in any way accountable, principally to Congress, Scott, right, into the political branches. And this is, you know, one of the things that I try to do in the book is I try to tell briefly, but hopefully accessibly, um, the history of the court and the history of its relationship to Congress when it comes to, you know, its behavior. Um, and the reality is that the court today looks nothing like um, the court as recently as 35 years ago when it comes to its relationship with Congress. Congress used to control the court's docket um, by basically dictating which cases the court would and would not hear. Um, that really starts to fall away in the 20th century. Congress used to control where the court sat until 1935. The court sat in the Capitol as if, you know, anyone needed a reminder of who was in charge. Mm. Um, Congress used to exercise much tighter control over the court's budget. And so, you know, Scott, I, I think there is a story here about sort of Congress taking its hands off of the Supreme Court and this and some of the ethics issues um, being one of the symptoms of that disease and being sort of symptoms of a court that's unaccountable. One of the points I try to make in the book, one of the things I think we ought to be comfortable, you know, agreeing to, even if we disagree about the substance, is that just because the Constitution requires an independent court doesn't mean it requires an unaccountable court. Mm. Um, and it's sort of splitting that difference that I think Congress has gotten out of the business of trying to do and that it would really help us all if it, you know, remember that that's part of its job. Again, we're talking with Stephen Vladek about his new book, The Shadow Docket. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call. Uh, what are your questions for uh, Professor Vladek? Uh, what would you like to understand about the Supreme Court's shadow docket or anything else that they do? Are you concerned about the Supreme Court's legitimacy? Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or you can reach us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Here's a comment from Susie who writes, it appears this is another example of fascism rising in our country and we must fight back. The right wing is winning and we must stop this in every area that it rises up. Trumpism is not going away. Um, Steve Vladek, I mean, um, that might be a little extreme, but on the other hand, uh, you know, we, what happened January 6th and, and the reaction to that from various parts of you know, the country and in some ways the courts, although the courts have generally uh, decided against Trump on everything, you know, including uh, January 6th, but also, you know, the uh, the election results. But, you know, do you, do you see 
do you see that strain in our politics of, you know, fascism, extremism, that this shadow docket is in some way fueling? Um, I, I guess only at the margins. I mean, I mean, I, I see, I see why there are folks who are going to see the linkage there. I, I guess to me, the stronger connection between, you know, sort of lessons of the Trump years and what we're seeing with regard to the Supreme Court is, you know, I think we learned over and over again during the Trump presidency that there are all kinds of principles that we thought were rules that turned out to only be norms <laughs> um, mm. when it comes to shaping how government institutions behave, when it comes to, you know, what kinds of actions government can take. And one of the problems when you have principles that really are only norms is that when those norms are transcended, there's no obvious enforcement mechanism yeah. um, in contrast to when rules are violated. And so I guess this, you know, in that respect, Scott, to me, it dovetails with the broader conversation about sort of reasserting um, rules, reasserting enforcement mechanisms where Congress is actually pulling levers, not necessarily to push the justices to decide cases differently, but rather to suggest that as an institution, the court has an obligation to act you know, in ways that are more consistent with the public's expectations. Yeah. And so to me, the the most alarming part of where we are right now in our public discourse about the court is the talking point that Justice Alito, among others, um, has been putting out there that somehow it's inappropriate, uh, somehow it's, it's inappropriate for people to be cr uh, criticizing the court in the way that we're criticizing it right now. You know, I, I think it would be much healthier if the court actually provided substantive responses to those criticisms than, it, than spending time attacking the critics. Yeah. It'd be interesting to have like an annual press conference from the chief justice, wouldn't it? Well, so, but I mean, Scott, but I mean, you say that, I mean, the, there is a tradition, a year end report um, on behalf of the chief justice that Warren Burger started in the mid 1970s. And Scott, he started it as a wish list to Congress, um, basically sort of a, a quasi state of the union, but for the judiciary. And one of the things that's really remarkable about the sort of the chief justice, um, the chief justice year end report is that that tradition persisted through all of Berger's tenure and through all of William H. Rehnquist's tenure. And it was only in 2009 that John Roberts, although he continued to give these year end reports, Scott, he stopped asking for anything. Hmm. <laughs> um, right. Sort of um, sending the message like, hey, we're fine. We don't need you. Yeah. And I think that that mentality is a big part of how, how we are where we are today. Interesting. All right. Let's bring some of our listeners in. Again, the number to call is 866-733-6786. And we're going to begin up on the Pacific North Coast. Steve in Portland, Oregon. Welcome. Hello. Thank you. Um, it seems like we're proposing getting rid of the shadow docket. I wonder what its benefits are and if the justices could respond in time if they didn't have that. Stephen Vladek, first of all, I don't so, think we, anybody uh, can get it, rid of it, right? I mean, no, and, and nor do I think we should. I mean, I think it's, you know, Justice Alito likes to suggest that people like me don't think there should be a shadow docket. And that's just nonsense. I mean, the, the Supreme Court, like any appellate court, needs a mechanism for resolving true emergencies. Um, what I think that we ought to do, and the court should be invested in this as much as we are, is um, t you know mitigate the consequences of those interventions so that if the court is going to be resolving things without explanation, have those resolutions affect no one other than the parties to those cases, 
have the justices, you know, feel obliged to explain themselves, even when they're doing that, as opposed to unsigned, unexplained orders. Um, and, you know, and if the justices are seeing broader problems in lower courts behavior, that's putting all this pressure on the shadow docket, um, they should be leading the charge in articulating what those problems are and how they can be fixed. Yeah. And so uh, no one's trying to, I, 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 I can't say, I can't say no one is. I'm not trying to get rid of the shadow docket. I'm just trying to push the justices to use it in a way that does not reflect so terribly upon the court as an institution. Save themselves from themselves. Um, exactly. <laughs> here's a comment from Sean in Danville who writes, I have heard the Supreme Court now expects lower courts to rule based on current shadow docket decisions. Could your guest please comment on this aspect of setting precedent? Yeah, I mean, I think this is actually one of the most bizarre and, and troubling things we've seen in the last couple of years. So um, there was a, a there were a series of cases involving California COVID mitigation measures in early 2021, where eventually the Supreme Court um, started yelling at the Court of Appeals, the, the Ninth Circuit, for refusing to follow unsigned, unexplained orders in prior COVID cases. And, you know, I, I guess I just think that that's a rather... Um, preposterous thing for the Supreme Court to say to a lower court, hey, lower court, your decision in this case was wrong because you didn't adequately divine what we meant in a ruling that we didn't explain. <laughs> um, and yet here we are. And so, you know, Justice Alito in his speech at Notre Dame Law School in September 2021 said, you know, we've been criticized for treating these rulings as precedential. We're not doing that. And my response is, you know, here's literally an order where you did exactly that. Mm. Um, so, you know, Scott, I think, I think part of the problem is, is that, um, there's such a knee jerk reaction on the part of conservatives to assume that when folks like me criticize the court, we're necessarily acting in bad faith that they don't even bother to look at the receipts. <laughs> and, you know, I think the receipts are pretty troubling, um, not because they indict the conservative justices as such, but because they suggest that there's a pattern of behavior here that it's in the conservative justices interests to avoid as much as possible. All right, we are coming up on a break. We're gonna continue our conversation with Stephen Vladek about his new book, The Shadow Docket, how the Supreme Court uses stealth rulings to amass power and undermine the Republic. We'd love to hear from you. We have a few, uh, maybe a couple open lines. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786, or reach us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We're at KQED Forum. Scott Schaefer, here this hour for Mina Kim, join us for this conversation about the shadow docket. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to our conversation with University of Texas law professor Stephen Vladek. His book is titled The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. And let's go to the phones and William in San Francisco. Welcome. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I've got a comment about ethics and the court. And, you know, I, I really wanted to bring this up based on what Professor Vladek was saying. You know, these, the justices, they're appointed for lifetime appointments. And they're tasked with being the final arbiters of the law and for ensuring that American people have equal justice under law. And, and they work in a building that says that, equal justice under law, right? And we've recently learned through the ProPublica investigation that Thomas has, like, just decided that he doesn't want to follow uh, reasonable ethical practices. And we've also recently heard in a whole bunch of, you know, some political but other non-political uh, publications about his wife's involvement. In, in politics and some considerable sums of money that have changed hands. Yep. And none of this has sort of been disclosed. And, and the court hasn't talked about these issues openly. And again, similar to the shadow docket idea, some of this stuff is just glossed over or kept from the public. Hmm. And, you know, I'm not a legal eagle. I don't follow the court. I, I, you know, I wouldn't know any of these guys if I met them in a bar, but like, I'm a taxpayer. And, and these guys are supposed to work for me, and they're supposed to be, like, the, the top dogs of the legal world. Yeah. And they don't have a code of ethics, and they're not following, you know, what in industry and in the lower court system, I think, is required. Yeah. Well, Stephen— And, and so how, how are we supposed to have faith yeah. when we learn about these things that, that these guys are accurately representing— what we as citizenry expect. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, Stephen Vladek, that's sort of the, one of the points of your book, is that it is, in effect, I was going to ask you, you know, the subtitle there, Undermining the Republic. I mean, it's undermining faith in, in a you know, one of the three branches of government that we're, that you need to have faith in, and which historically has had pretty high ratings until, you know, until recently. That's exactly right. And I, I would just add that the, you know, the, the last part of the subtitle is a little bit provocative, <laughs> but, it's, but, it, but it's deliberate. I mean, I think the... You know, when the court acts in ways that don't appear to be judicial, um, it really is, I think, calling into question the structural relationship that the Constitution contemplates. We, you know, we entrust a lot of power to unelected judges. Um, and the terms of that bargain are that they are, in turn, supposed to exercise that power in what the Constitution calls good behavior. Um, and subject to the restraints and constraints Congress imposes. And I think it's really, really problematic. You know, we're all going to disagree about which are the most problematic features. I think, though, the more we look at the court in its entirety, as opposed to just as the sum of its merits decisions, the more we see a lot of troubling institutional behavior, yeah. um, behavior by individual justices, behavior by the full court. And, and, you know, the more I hope that there's actually opportunity for consensus, even among those who otherwise are not inclined to agree about the Supreme Court, that there's room for meaningful improvement and for, you know, putting the court onto more appropriate 
institutional footing. Well, and it seems, too, that in the past, you know, whether or not I remember, for example, when Ronald Reagan appointed uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, first woman on the court, and even Anthony Kennedy, who came from California, that there were a lot of criticisms that, you know, oh, they were going to you know, get rid of abortion and all that reverse Roe v. Wade. And, you know, they turned out to be very centrist in many things, not everything, uh, but the swing justices on issues, including abortion and uh, LGBTQ rights, that sort of thing. And they were genuinely swing justices. I mean, you had the feeling that they could be persuaded one way or the other, but that they were open-minded. And to me, what's concerning about the court now is that you just don't really see that. It's almost like you don't even need the oral arguments. It's kind of a charade. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, this is the problem of not having a median. Um, so, you know, the what, th there are sort of two features of the current court that we haven't seen in a long time. Um, the first is that, you know, since 2010, we now have one-to-one -one alignment between the ideology of the justices and the party of the president that appointed them. Um, so that, you know, in the old days, there were liberal Republicans on the court and there were conservative Democrats on the court. And that's just not true anymore. Uh, and it hasn't been since 2010. And, and I think the second part of it is, you know, when Justice Kennedy retired in 2018, um, obviously, you know, it's just a it's a mathematical certainty that there is a median justice today. But it's a median justice who is nowhere near as close to the middle as Kennedy was. And that has all kinds of implications on the court's decision making, on its behavior, even on the behavior of individual justices, um, in ways that I think we're still only now beginning to fully appreciate, and in ways that suggest that maybe there actually is value in what used to be the not the not so long ago the notion that actually it's good to have centrists on the court as opposed to the most ideologically extreme person you can get through the Senate. Yeah, it depends on which team you're on, I guess, you know. Well, indeed. <laughs> All right. we, 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 want, we, we want the other team to have centrists. <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's go back to the phones now. And Tom in San Francisco, welcome. Um, the, the justice is supposed to be the sharpest people in the, in the country. And yet um, they've just voted down gerrymandering. That's that's not going to be in their uh, ruling. Uh, they want the states and the Congress to do that. But they ruled down what the Congress uh, voted on in the 60s to create uh, voting rights. And now they're allowing gerrymandering uh, the right of the few to rule over the right of the majority. Um, and they won't touch it. Uh, the other little comment I would like to uh, you guys to comment about is Sheldon Whitehead, uh, during the confirmation hearing of, I think it was Barrett, uh, remarked about like there were 80 court decisions that out of the 80 court decisions, 80 were uh, judged to be in, uh, for the corporate side of the argument. Um, and, and we're basically losing faith in the role of the Supreme Court. Hmm. What do you guys have to say? <laughs> well, you're the law professor, Stephen Vladek. Uh, let's hear from you. <laughs> um, I, I, someone should write a book. Um, <laughs> so, so I mean, I think, I think the, I'm, I, I think the gerrymandering decisions, especially the 2019 ruling in a case called Rucho versus Common Cause, where the court by a five to four vote. Um, held that partisan gerrymandering disputes are not properly before the federal courts at all, um, really are a serious and significant contributor 
to some of the problems we're seeing. I mean, I think the you know polarization of Congress has a lot to do with why Congress has stopped regulating the court. And so in that respect, I do think it's a bit of a vicious cycle. Um, that said, you know, I haven't given up the ghost on the idea that there's some possibility to forge consensus um, between gerrymandered Republicans and gerrymandered Democrats that, you know, some reforms of the Supreme Court can be done that are not visibly trying to make it harder for the court to do pro-conservative things that are not perceived as attacks on the justices. And, you know, part of why I wrote this book is because I think when the entire conversation, when the discourse about the Supreme Court is focused solely and exclusively on its decisions, on Dobbs and on Bruin, the Second Amendment case, that's impossible, right? We're never going to get folks to agree with those kinds of divisive, substantive rulings. But when we focus the conversation on the court as an institution, it has been my experience that there's more opportunity there yeah, and that there's more of a way to actually forge consensus on the need for reforms, um, even with those who are actually relatively happier with the bottom lines of the decisions the court's handing down in these cases. Yeah. All right. Let's stay in San Francisco and let's go to Jonathan next. You're on Forum with Stephen Vladek. Welcome. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, um, I'm hearing all this conversation. What's really getting me is, you know, we're supposed to live in a democracy, right? You know, why are we letting a few people, you know, make these decisions for all of us when it comes to big ticket items like abortion and marijuana legalization or whatever else? You know, if we just let the people, us, just vote for these things, we can make decisions <laughs> like these for ourselves. Oh, and the careful. second thing I don't really understand is, is this whole opposition to the court of public opinion. Usually the court of public opinion is a great indicator of, of the direction that we are going as a society. So we shouldn't be that opposed to it. If people have something to say, let the people speak, let the people vote. We are the people. We should have our say. Yeah, Jonathan, thank you. You know, my, I was thinking as he was talking, um, Stephen, about what happens when the people do vote uh, in a state like, uh, you know, Wisconsin, for example, recently, which was, you know, has a very different system of electing Supreme Court justices to the state Supreme Court than we do here in California, where it was just a no-holds-barred partisan race and the Democrat or the pro uh, the pro abortion rights uh, judge won and flipped the that court to a more liberal majority now. But what are your thoughts about that? Uh, you know, the Supreme Court being so completely uh, insulated and isolated from the public? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, you know, part of the design for better or for yeah. worse. Um, and, you know, the, the 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 Constitution creates the Supreme Court as an independent and unelected branch on purpose um, from the idea that when it comes to especially minority rights, um, it's going to be a lot easier for unelected judges to protect minority rights um, than it would be if they were elected, um, right? Because uh, the tyranny of the majority was one of the great fears that animated the, the drafting of the Constitution. Um, the tricky part is that, and so, right, so, you know, Roe versus Wade is a good example of this, right? There are states in which Roe was very, very unpopular, and yet the Supreme Court, by articulating it, by reading it into the 14th Amendment, right, made it something that the states couldn't mess with until the court overruled it. Um, the, the tricky part is if you're going to have unelected judges with the power to rule in ways that are anti-democratic, you also have to have a mechanism for ensuring that they're still acting responsibly in doing so, right? That there's a sort of a range of responsible and anti-democratic action by judges and irresponsible anti-democratic action by judges. And we're not all gonna agree on where the line is between those two things, 
what we all should be able to agree on is that that's a line to be drawn by the political branches. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a line that's got for better or for worse, the political branches have stopped drawing. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of how we got to where we are today. Yeah. Here's a comment from Lance who writes, John Roberts was once raising his concerns about the reputation and respect for the court being a concern. However, he hasn't lifted a finger to create and put in place an ethical standard. Agree? I mean, I, I think this goes back to, you know, Scott, we talked a bit earlier about how the chief justice actually doesn't have as much power as he might think. Um, and so, you know, John, there's very little John Roberts can do by himself to impose ethical standards on the other eight justices. It's really about forging consensus among them that this is an important step forward. Um, and, I, you know, I don't doubt that he's trying. The problem is, is that um, he has no enforcement mechanism. Mm. Uh, re- at the end of the day, the only thing John Roberts could do by himself is resign. Yeah. Um, just and, let me just and, uh, and, you know, try. Let me, I'm yeah, sorry, sorry to Scott, interrupt. Let me just say yeah. you're listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in Fermina Kim. And we're talking to Stephen Black. Sorry to interrupt you there. We have to do a little cutaway for some stations. So <laughs> no. Just to be completely transparent. Uh, but can, finish your thought if you would. No, just that. I mean, I think that this, you know, there's a popular, I think, conception out there that anyone who's the chief justice um, can do whatever he or she wants. And would that that were true. <laughs> um, but ultimately, this is really more about hurting cats. And at least some of those cats don't want to be hurted, which is why, you know, I think some of these reforms really do need to come from outside the court rather than from within it. Yeah. All right. Let's see if we can get another caller in. Chris in Santa Clara, you're next. Hey, great. Um, Stephen, you know, I'm trying to get a sense of what specific reforms you want Congress to enact over the court, Um, because if these are items that maybe should become part of congressional campaigns where, you know, a Democrat could say, hey, like me, and I'm going to advocate for this type of reform to oversee the court or, you know, perhaps somebody on the conservative side could could say something similar. What are those specifics? And then also to kind of toss in with it, we have more women on the U.S. Supreme Court than at any time in our nation's history. Might this be seen by some people that a male-dominated Congress is being asked to oversee an increasingly female-run U.S. court? Hmm. Interesting. Stephen? Um, So to the first, I mean, there are a series of specific reforms that the book identifies. I think Congress should actually give the court more mandatory jurisdiction, that is to say cases the court has to hear, um, compared to giving the court almost unlimited discretion over its docket. I think there are ways Congress could require the justices to act in different ways on emergency applications. Congress could go back to the circuit justice model we talked about before, where the norm is for one justice to resolve those, not the full court. But part of why I don't sort of dwell on those specific proposals is because I'd be so happy with any movement from Congress. Um, and I think, you know, when when the when these are all symptoms of the disease and when the disease is just congressional uh, disavowal, congressional sort of abdication, it really almost doesn't matter what the reforms are, just Congress getting up off of its behind uh, when it comes to overseeing the court would be such a salutary step, in my view. Yeah. Um, to the question about sort of having four female justices for the first time, I, I will confess I've never heard that before, um, that the concern is that the men in Congress are, are pushing against the women on the court, at least in part because three of those four women are the Democratic appointees, who I think everyone understands are very much in the substantive minority right now and not just the gender minority. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's no question that any reforms are going to be aggressively responded to by the court's defenders as 
trying to intrude upon the court's prerogative, as trying to uh, override the separation of powers. We've seen this already with regard to some of the proposed ethics reform legislation. And all I want to say is, you know, if folks read the book and read chapter one and the history of how Congress regulated the court, oversaw the court, you know, structured the court's docket from the founding well into the 20th century, I think they'd have a hard time taking those objections seriously. Yeah. Uh, here's a comment from Gail who writes, well before Trump, Senator McConnell refused to hold hearings on President Obama's legitimate nomination for the Supreme Court, Merrick Garland, uh, many, many other federal courts as well. The unprincipled behavior set the stage for packing the court after Trump was elected. Um, certainly, you know, uh, you, you know, you could say there was a hypocrisy in the way that the Scalia and Ginsburg vacancies were uh, filled, to say the least. I think that's right. I mean, and I think there's no question that folks are going to continue to be upset and angry about, you know, politicians maximizing their political advantage. And I, you know, as the the, the Politico in me shares that frustration, um, I guess the question is, so what do we do about it? And, you know, one response, and I think this is a common view among progressives, is payback. Um, is that, you know, Democrats should fight tooth and nail to add four seats to the court and to fill that with four, you know, Democratic nominees. Um, of course, then, you know, that opens the door to Republicans re repaying the favor the next time they're in charge so that in 30 years, the Supreme Court would have 37 seats and no legitimacy. I guess this is the conversation I'm trying to change is, you know, regardless of who is in those seats, regardless of the fact that it's Neil Gorsuch instead of Merrick Garland, the court would be just as unchecked today, um, even if we had people we were happier with on the court. And, you know, if we can actually keep these two conversations distinct, uh, my hope is that even if we can't make progress in changing who's on the court, we can make progress in ensuring that that's not as important um, because the court as an institution feels itself more beholden to the political branches and through them to the American people. Yeah. And where we are today is a court that just doesn't remotely care and has no reason to look over its shoulder. You know, that, Scott, is the conversation the book is trying to yeah. precipitate and get us to have. Yeah. And of course, with June upon us, we're going to have a lot more to talk about with the Supreme Court, some bigger decisions coming down shortly. The Shadow Docket is the name of the book by Stephen Vladek. He'll be appearing uh, at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco tomorrow night at six. You can get tickets, by the way, online, uh, in person and online if you prefer. Thanks so much for joining us and uh, great book. Highly recommend it and uh, very provocative. Thanks. Thanks for joining us for the hour. Thanks for having me, Scott. You've been listening to Forum. I want to thank, uh, in addition to Stephen Vladek, all of our listeners for your comments and questions. I'm Scott Schaefer. In for Mina Kim, have a great day. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.